following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. I'd love to spend 52 weeks talking about the Holy Spirit through Scripture and in our lives and in the church, but I'm not allowed to. I've got a strict time frame, and I'm glad there's a clock here because I was looking around for where it is, so I take that hint. Um, We've got a little bit of time today, so I want to work through the Creed, the Apostles' Creed, from the third article. I believe in God the Father, I believe in God the Son. The third article, I believe in God the Holy Spirit. So I want to treat today like a midpoint summary, if you like, because I firmly believe this is how the Creed was constructed, and I hope to make that clear. Famed New Testament scholar, pastor, spiritual writer, and all-round good guy, Gordon Fee, once told the following true story. He said, Rose was a nominal Christian who, in her adult years, had basically abandoned any relationship to the Christian faith. One day, two people came to her door with a new brand of Christianity, which in truth was nothing new at all. The Jehovah's Witnesses who visited her were self-aware Arians. It's a heresy from the early church who not only deny the deity of Christ, but they have no knowledge or experience of the Spirit as the personal presence of God. They offered Rose a simplistic faith, one in which the mystery of the Trinity was removed, and in her own spiritual emptiness she bought it, hook, line, and sinker. In a long afternoon conversation with Rose and two of the leaders from her kingdom hall, my son Mark and I carefully went through all the texts about Christ, Texts with which they were familiar, albeit in a superficial and rote way, but continually reached dead ends. Gordon Fee's one of the most intelligent New Testament interpreters we've ever had, so I don't think they realised they were sitting with such a person. But they drew a complete and total blank. Toward the end of the afternoon, however, my son Mark asked them about their experience of the Holy Spirit. They drew a total blank at this point. The Holy Spirit was for them no person at all, but only an influence from God in our behalf. When we began to describe our life in the Spirit, they became noticeably ill at ease, and the conversation came to a speedy end. Not only had we begun to enter an area in which they had no trained response, but also the one essential ingredient to their becoming believers in Christ was clearly missing the pouring out of the Spirit into their lives so as to cry, Abba, Father. Through that experience, I became convinced that the reason Rose and so many others like her get trapped in these funny beliefs is only in part because the Trinity is a mystery. Most people, after all, prefer to reduce God to a size that their own minds can grasp and thus control. But it's also because... They have been let down by the church, which continually treats the Spirit as a matter of creed and doctrine, but not as a vital, experienced reality in believers' lives. And it's that last sentence I highlighted when I first read this quote many years ago. We're working through, we, like that, we're working through the Apostles' Creed, and you're up to that third article, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? rhetorical because who's going to say no, (laughs) Uh, at least in public. I know you do believe in the Holy Spirit. You're Christians, you're Bible readers. I know that. But 
what do you believe about the Spirit and why do you believe what you believe about the Spirit? There's that occasion recorded in the Acts of the Apostles in which Paul questions some of the disciples. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? They responded, no, we haven't even heard there was a Spirit. It's a really unusual text, Acts 19. That might be the case too, I think, with the history of Christian traditions at their worst. Do you know the Holy Spirit? Yeah, we've heard of him, we believe him, we say the Apostles' Creed, but no, not much more than that. I'm intrigued what we might say if we had two Jehovah's Witnesses in our living room having a glass of water, because they're not allowed coffee, and talking about our life in the Spirit. That would be fascinating. I wonder if we could do it. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit has been dubbed the Cinderella of theological beliefs, the poor relation, the overlooked and living off the scraps of other pieces person. But possessing enough beauty for it to become, given the right set of conditions, the object of proper attention. Well, what are the right set of conditions that the Holy Spirit might be the object of our proper attention? That's what I think the Apostles' Creed, which is just a shorthand summary of what we read in Scripture, is putting its finger on. And it's to that that I want to talk today. But before we do, I think I have to just preface it briefly, like for a minute, how do you read this creed? How do you read any creed? And we're not, let's face it, as Protestants, as free church people, we don't do a lot with creeds. We're not like the Anglicans who would say the Nicene Creed every week. We're not like Catholics who use creeds a lot. We're not like the Presbyterians. And yet there is something, something incredibly powerful about creeds. You take a million-word Bible and you condense it into a hundred-word creed as a way to summarize and bring it, us into this, this bigger picture. And so here I want to just draw on a, an idea that C.S. Lewis gave. Any C.S. Lewis fans? Fantastic. The rest of you need to get a life. Uh, <laughs> that's not fair, is it? Um, C.S. Lewis says this is how we should read many things, not just Scripture, but many things. We should, instead of looking at them, we have to learn to look along them. And he came to this realization when he's in his tool shed out the back and he sees the shaft of light coming in through the cracks of the door. And if you look directly at the light, what happens? You just get blinded. You ever looked at light through a crack? But if you stand to the side of it and you can see the sunbeam and you can see the dust going through it, and more importantly, you can see what it shines light on. He uses another illustration, which I like even more. He says, think of a dog. You have your dog and you're trying to train it. And you're saying, go there, go there. What does the dog do? Comes and licks your finger. It's like, what do you want the dog to do? Look over there. Actually, my kids aren't here. They've just gone to Sunday school. When they were young, over there. And they're like, they're looking at me. Where? It's like, we're looking at the thing instead of looking along it to where it's pointing. And so let's read the creed again today. Instead of just looking at it, let's look along it. I believe in God, comma the Father Almighty. I believe in God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, our Lord. I believe in God, the Holy Spirit. That's part of how this is supposed to be read, and we'll unpack this as we go. So, uh, let me try and keep to some time. Let's start at the beginning. I believe in God, comma, what God? First article, the Father Almighty. But when we say we believe in God, we're professing a conviction that God has invited us into this commitment and declared that we have accepted this invitation. 
There's no sense in Christianity until the modern period at least, which is a miserable period, where we have so-called head knowledge versus heart knowledge. There is no such thing in Christianity. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Do you believe that rationally or do you believe that with a spiritual sense? Or do you believe I believe it with all that I am because belief, pistis in Greek, faith, trust, commitment, these are all the same words. I believe, I commit, I worship what I know to be true. But where does this belief come from? How do you know it to be true? Well, just one text, one text only because of time, 1 Corinthians 2. And we impart this gospel, says Paul, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to them, and they are not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. So even right here at the beginning, we're already talking about the Holy Spirit. We're talking about what the Holy Spirit does and who the Holy Spirit is. God reveals God. Apologetics will get you so far, good arguments will get you so far, a wonderful life will get you so far, the love we share amongst ourselves will get us so far, but it won't get anyone across the line and it didn't get you across the line. Only God can. And God does it as the Father speaks His Word into being and into existence in, in our lives and the Holy Spirit takes that and convicts us and convinces us and converts us. I believe in God the Father Almighty. There's no argument for that. There's no proof for that. There's no objective qualifications for that in the creed because this is a gathering of believers who have the Spirit within them. And again, we, we want to note in this first article, I believe in God singular, the Father, and then it goes on to talk about the Son, and then it goes on to talk about the Holy Spirit. So we already have a Trinitarian doctrine here, the doctrine that the God we worship is utterly and absolutely unique. There isn't another religion, there isn't even a sci-fi that's ever come up with anything like this. And again, look, just, just one text, perhaps the, the baptismal formula, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, as Jesus is about to depart, go therefore and baptize in the name of God, singular, the name of the one God, baptize them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, this tri-personal God. Can we utterly comprehend it? You'd be lying if you say yes. But can we apprehend it? Can we get a sense of it spiritually and rationally? Absolutely, because that's the only God who has revealed himself to us. And right at the start of this creed, I believe, we believe in God the Father Almighty. God the Father Almighty. It's a proper name. It's a personal name. And we know that if someone's called Father, they have to have offspring. Not physically derived and generated offspring, but we already have a relationship here to have a father is, in the biblical narrative, to have his son, his only unique and eternally begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we know this? We only know it because the Holy Spirit is the one who enlightens us. And so already in this first article on belief in I believe in God the Father, it's utterly saturated with spirit language, spirit concepts, 
with spiritual stuff. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no Father. Without the Father, there is no Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, there's no knowledge of the Father. Without the Holy Spirit, let's go further, there is no relationship with the Father. Again, maybe just two texts, which will be familiar to you. Romans 8, 15, Galatians 4, 6. The Spirit you received brought about your adoption into Jesus Christ, so that by the Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, this, this sense of endearment, sense of intimacy. No longer is God God. That's just a very bland word. Theos, Deus, the ultimate one, the underived one, the first principle. Yuck! We don't use that language in worship. God is not the great architect in the sky. That's not how we pray and worship and sing. God is our Father. But if you know Scripture, you know that that's not entirely true. Well, it's not enough, right? Because in Scripture, who is God the Father of? Properly speaking. Not rhetorical. Anyone? He is only the Father, properly speaking, of the Eternal Son. He's not our Father by nature. He becomes our Father by grace. Otherwise, we would be divine. Does that make some sense? And the Holy Spirit is sent into our hearts, unites us to Christ so that we become heirs of Christ, co-heirs with Christ, so that we become brothers and sisters because we are in the Son, the eternal Son, who takes us into this relationship with the Heavenly Father so that this is one of the most staggering things Christians can believe. And we're just so used to it, we get complacent. God Almighty is our Father. I don't deserve to have Him as my Father. There's nothing within me that would qualify Him to have me as His Son. And yet, in Jesus Christ, as the Holy Spirit brings us into Christ, and Christ brings us to the Father, we have more intimacy with the God of all creation than we do with the neighbor next door, or even with our husband, our wife, or our children. That is staggering, and it's here in the creed. I believe. So, let's get into the real meat of it. I believe in Jesus Christ, the second article. And here I better control myself in terms of time. Let's look along the creed and along Scripture to see and answer this question. Where in the life of Christ do we see the person and work of the Holy Spirit? And I've spent lots of my career invested in this, so I'm passionate about it, but let's try and condense it. We believe that Jesus Christ is His only Son. But how is this possible? It's only possible because the eternal Son is the one in strict theological language that we get from Scripture, is eternally being begotten by the Father. He has a relationship with the Father. Remember John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. should be toward God, really, in a better translation. Where's the Spirit in all of that? Where's the Spirit in all of that? Well, we know from the rest of Scriptures, from Jesus' teaching in John 14, 15, 16, and 17, we know from lots of Paul's letters, we know from Old Testament anticipations into New Testament fulfillment, that the Spirit is the one by whom the Son is being begotten from the Father. 
that the Father begets the Son by the Spirit. I'm not asking any of you to understand that. I don't understand it. Not fully. But this is what it means to say our God is three in one, Father, Son, Spirit. There is no Father without Son without Spirit. There's no Spirit without Son without Father. And do that three times and you somehow get it. Um, again, this is not rational comprehension. It's not mathematics. That's the wrong discipline here. But we know that to be true. Before the service, we had a prayer meeting and we were praying directly to the Holy Spirit. And we were praying directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. We were praying directly to God the Father. And in all those prayers, we're praying directly to God, but in a very coordinated way, in a very rich way, in a very intimate way, in a very relational way. That's what makes prayer come alive. Anyway, Jesus Christ, his son. Already in this creed, Jesus is called the Christ, the Messiah, the Spirit-anointed one. And we know that from his conception, who conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. That's what we confess in this creed. And we know from the biblical record that at the beginning, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and she was with child. Let's not investigate the gynecological aspects of that anymore. That's, that's all we need to know about that. But what does it mean if we look along it? What does it mean that here is a human that is conceived by the Holy Spirit? And we've already had reference in this service to Ezekiel. We could turn to Joel, we could turn to Isaiah 61 and many other texts that say in the prophecies of Israel for 1,000 years, for 1,800 years, for nearly 2,000 years. I can't get my head around that. New Zealand's what? A couple of hundred years old at most in terms of its European history. For several thousand years, a people have been looking forward to that day when that one will come. They couldn't rationally comprehend it either. But they had this expectation, they had this wild hope that in the last days, when God comes, when he comes down to earth to make all things new, when he comes to judge, when he comes to put right, we know he will look and act a certain way. They didn't know if he'd be six foot or five foot five, they didn't know what color hair he'd be, not, not that sort of look. They knew that he would have the spirit without measure. And how do you know if someone's got the spirit without measure? Because he will do certain things that God has said he would do. He will give sight to the blind. Did Jesus do that? Have you been amazed at how many stories in Scripture? There's blind people around every corner. It's because that's the way that God has providentially done this. Because if you look at the healing, it's just interesting. This one person, he spits on the ground, makes mud, puts it in his eyes. You're half healed. That wasn't very good wonder what's wrong with Jesus. So does it a bit more? He's now fully. If you look at it, it makes no sense. If you look along it, what does it mean? He's opening the eyes of people to the reality of God. The miracle is not the point. It was for the blind person. I'm not denying that. But the miracle is not the point. The miracle is a window through which we see the point. This Jesus who heals, this Jesus who opens the eyes in fulfillment of prophecy is the one that God is going to send and has now sent to be our rescuer and our redeemer, our saviour, our Lord. He is God himself. We have prophecies from the Old Testament that God will release captives. Did Jesus do that? We tried to every turn. We have prophecies in the Old Testament that he will and only he will be able to forgive sins. And he did that. And what the religious leaders want to do? You can't say you've done that. 
Only God can do that. That's blasphemy. And he says, well, is it easier to forgive sins or is it easier to heal someone? And they're like, oh, I guess it's easier to heal than to Well, you're also healed, so why don't you walk home as well? Again, if we look at the miracles, we get blinded by miracles. And then we have churches that want to replicate that exactly. Every service, every time, every meeting, every encounter has to be a healing one. Well, God heals. Amen? God continues to heal, right? It's the same God. But that was never the point, that every single instance. In the future, God will heal everybody in the new heavens and new earth. Resurrection, we call that. But if we look along it, we're seeing the identity of Jesus as the one that the Spirit inspires, the Spirit empowers. We come to the baptism of Jesus. The heavens open, the divine voice from the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, and the Spirit descends upon him as a dove. He already had the Spirit from conception. Here he receives the Spirit as an anointing for ministry. And again, that becomes something of a pattern for us in the Spirit's work in our life. We already have the Spirit. We're born of the Spirit. We must be born again, born from above, as Jesus said, John 3. But then each time we preach, if you're a preacher, and we did that this morning, I did that at home, you're asking for a fresh anointing of the Spirit, that it won't be me, you're here, it'll be God. Each time you talk to your neighbor, Lord, give me the words I need to do. Send me the Spirit to give me the words I need to say to this person. When you're going into tense situations, when you're having fun, whatever it is, we're asking again and again and again, as Paul said, be filled and continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not because we're buckets and we've got these holes and they keep leaking, but it's a relational filling. We're really saying, Lord, have more of me in each situation. And we see this in Jesus' life, and we see that mirrored in our life. It goes from baptism to ministry to his passion. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He was died, was buried, and descended to hell, we say in the creed. And at each of those moments in the, the death of Christ, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, where is the Holy Spirit? Let's just reel briefly for time. Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he dies, he takes some trusted, intimate disciples with them. Their spirit was willing, their bodies were weak. They fall asleep. Jesus is, is praying for us, and he's obviously in great distress, and he sweats drops of blood. In the Gospel of Mark, just to use one of them, his prayer begins, Abba, Father, if it is possible, take this cup, this cup of wrath from me, if it's possible. And he addresses God as Abba, Father. This is intimate, and we know from those texts we've already read, it's only by the empowerment of the Spirit that he can talk such ways, that he can pray in such a way that can he, have this, he can have this in, intimate relationship. And he concludes that prayer as the paradigm for all of our prayers, fully possessed of the Spirit of God, he says, not my will, but yours be done. And he didn't say it with gritted teeth. <laughs> not my will, but yours be done. We come to the cross where Jesus now, whatever this means, Paul says he became sin for us. That's... that's I don't know how to get your head around that. He represents all of our sin. Our sin, everyone who comes before, everyone who comes after, he takes it all into himself. He becomes our absolute substitute. And he cites that psalm on the cross, and it's no longer Abba, Father. What does he pray on the cross? 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only reference in the Gospels where Jesus calls God, God, and not Father. Because here, what is the Spirit doing? The Spirit is convicting because Christ is taking our sin upon Himself. And the Spirit is backing away at that point. And the Father is backing away at that, just about tripped up again, backing away at that point because He's representing us in our estrangement. You know what we call that in a four-letter word? Hell. The absence of the presence of God to bless. And that's what the creed has here. I agree with Reuben here just as well, right? And I checked beforehand. That I don't believe the early church here says he descended into hell as into a place. We're allowed to believe that. We're allowed to disagree. It's okay. But I don't think that's what, what they're saying here. And in fact, early commentaries would, would support this. The hell is a death forsaken by God. But what do the disciples do? As he dies, they're not even there, are they? A couple of the cowards are looking on from a distance. These are the male disciples. The females are there, right? The males at a distance, and half of them have begun to go home. They're cowering. They thought this was the death of God. They thought this was the end of the story. But what is the Spirit doing? I know you've already done this. What was the Spirit doing in, in the creation narrative? The Father speaks, His Word goes forth, and the Spirit hovers over the waters of chaos, bringing order. God says, let there be light. Jesus is the light of the world, and the Spirit is the one who achieves and perfects that. So the Spirit is the one who brings life into death. We know as Christians that this death of Christ on the cross, what's the Spirit doing? Well, we, we don't know exactly what He's doing, but we sure as heck know what He's going to do because He's going to do what the Spirit always do through, does throughout Scripture, brings to life. Not simply physical life, but spiritual life flourishing as the Spirit hovered over the waters of chaos and brought the abundance of human life and animal life and creation into existence, and then continued to perfect it. As the Spirit hovered over the womb of Mary and brought into her Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son, to be the Savior of the world, as the Spirit hovered over each of you, when, for me, when I was five or six, for some of you, when you were 50, for some when you were 30, in your spiritual birth, when you became Christians, as you look back, you can see the Spirit bringing order out of chaos, bringing light into darkness, bringing beauty into ugliness. And so as we look at that cross, we know what's going to happen if we know the Spirit. We know what the Spirit's going to do. Three days later, death could not hold him. Satan could not bind him because the Spirit of life, we are told, isn't that a lovely term for the Spirit? The Spirit of life will simply not leave Jesus in the grave. And he comes to life again. He ascends to the Father from which he says, if you believe in my ascension, you will believe it because the very first thing I will do is, you know this, when I get to the Father's right hand of power and privilege, the very first thing I will do is send you the Holy Spirit. This is what I want you to take from this. We don't simply receive spirit. It's not clearly defined enough. We don't simply receive the Holy Spirit, technically speaking. We receive the Holy Spirit who is now the spirit of the risen Lord Jesus Christ so that the spirit we now have as a result of Pentecost is the spirit that 
was with Christ in his ultimate trial and death. Will he be with you in your trial? Will he be with you in temptation? Will he be with you when your parent dies, your relationship goes sour, when people start talking against you, when the world goes to hell in a handbag, your world, and you will feel like God, because you're no longer praying Abba, because that sense of intimacy, that, that feeling is gone. And let's not deny those feelings. And when you're praying to God and your prayers hit the roof and they bounce straight back, this is where creed and doctrine have to become vital lived experience. He did not leave Jesus in the grave. He will not leave you in your misery and suffering. He won't. He will bring you to life again as well. Does that mean everything will go right? Your dead ones will come alive, your relationships will revive, etc. No, it doesn't. Not always, but sometimes. But nonetheless, out of tragedy and disaster and chaos, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of the resurrection, will bring order, will bring light, and will bring beauty. That's why they get to this third clause, and I'm about to conclude. They get to the third clause. What does it say? I believe in the Holy Spirit. Full stop. <laughs> Where's the rest of it? Where's the narrative? Where's I believe in the Holy Spirit who will give us prophecies, who will give us miracles, who will... It doesn't have any of that narrative, and I think it's deliberate because it's already given that narrative in Jesus Christ. Because the life we have in the Spirit is the life of the risen Christ. And so it would be utterly redundant to repeat that. And so it's like a, a hinge, if you like. I believe in the Holy Spirit who was with God, the Father Almighty, creating, sustaining, purposing, giving us a plan and a design. It's the Spirit and the Son that are actively involved there as well. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because we, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Spirit that the Lord Himself sent to us so that the life we live, and I want to be corporate here deliberately, the life we live is the life of the risen Christ. So there's one over there that's suffering and there's one over there that's rejoicing and as a fellowship, as a communion, as a temple, as a body, we, we rejoice and we suffer together but we do so in Christ, we do so in the Spirit. So when there are healings and when there are prophecies and when there are words of knowledge and when there aren't, we rejoice. We rejoice in suffering and we rejoice in affluence. We're going to share some of that affluence when we're doing it. That's the life of the Spirit the creed dictates to us. And so I won't steal the thunder of what's to come in your next two weeks, I think, but that's why the creed goes on to say, subordinate to the Holy Spirit clause, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the universal church, the one body of Christ. I believe in, let's look along it with the Spirit, I believe in new community. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in new relationship. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I believe in ultimate new existence. And I believe in everlasting life. We believe in new fulfillment and all of this comes as we know by creed and doctrine but now by lived experience collectively corporately i believe in the holy spirit as the nicene creed has which is a little bit more elaborated the lord and giver of life only because the lord jesus christ is the lord and giver of life only because God, our Abba, Father, 
is the Lord and giver of life. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.